Welcome to London. Um, I can see there's some new people. Welcome to London. Uh, whether this is your first Sunday, I think for some of you it might be. You, you might just have arrived this weekend in London. For others, it might be even your first day. So welcome to this glorious, exciting, bewildering, complicated city of London. It is a great place to live. Uh, you've made a great choice. It's a great place to find out about Jesus. And it is a great place to live for Jesus. But as well as that, there are um, complicated decisions facing Christians in London. Um, if you're new, you won't know, before the, the summer, we offered a seminar here uh, in the evening after the 5.30 on Christian identity at work. And we got well over four times the number of people we thought we'd have, hundreds of us crammed into the room downstairs. But with our Bibles open in this new series, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, you might be surprised to find God ready for our questions. Um, to show you how ready, I want to describe one world, sorry, I want to describe two worlds in one paragraph, two civilizations. Two civilizations, 2,000 years apart, but it will only need one paragraph. So our London, and then also Roman Corinth in the days of Jesus and Paul. They're not identical, but there are huge similarities. So in Corinth, um, in Corinth, it didn't matter what God you believed in. There were lots of gods from all over the world. Corinth was a trading port, and people came to Corinth from all over Europe and Africa and modern Iran and further afield, and everyone brought their gods. And you could worship your god in your way, as long as you didn't insist that your God was the only God. As long as you didn't do that, you could worship however you wanted. And um, their whole life, in their way, it was, um, it was all um, communal and it was communally religious, which actually is the way it is in any country in the world where there is still a dominant single religious faith. It's how it used to be in England, how it is in most of the world today. And actually in London still, we have a dominant ideology and it is semi-religious, let's say, nearly religious in how it operates and functions. And it is tied into every part of our life. So um, in Corinth, um, are you in business? Do you want to insure your business? Well, you don't go to um, compare the market for a quote. What you do is you get together with other business people and you form a society. And you join by gathering together for a big meal in the temple and offering an animal to the gods and then eating it together. Uh, or in Corinth, do you want to get a professional qualification? Do you want to be a chartered accountant or a chartered sandal wearer or whatever it is, sandal maker? Well, then you need to get in with the guild of Hermes. Do you want to be a civil servant? Do you want to do a business deal? Do you want to buy a house? Do you want to be in the army? Do you want to have friends and get on in society? Do you want to be able to go to weddings and birth ceremonies and funerals? Well, in Corinth, then you better decide what to do about the fact that all of those things involve making an offering and somebody saying a prayer to a God. In um, their world, private homes could only host about 10 people for a meal, uh, even in the homes of the rich. So everything else happened, nearly everything else, in a temple setting. And so your job, your career, your status, even your place in your family was at stake 
when you decided whether or not to join in with each invitation. And not identical, but here is the multi-religious world of London, isn't it? I'm tolerant of everything except the shock decision not to join in. And different ones of us here will be facing different decisions. And I need to say right at the beginning, this series is not going to be delivering verdicts on every possible decision facing you. Um, That's not what we're doing at all. I hope that we will talk together and help each other with what are really very complicated decisions. So someone here may have started a new job. And maybe already, maybe you're a month in, and you're trying to work out, you can see that where you work... Um, money and pleasure are worshipped thoroughly, consistently. And you can see that the decisions for you about whether to join in or not, what to go to, what to keep yourself away from, what to laugh at, what not to laugh at, what to be with, what not to be, you can see actually those are big decisions. And where your job goes, where your friendship group goes, are going to depend what you do on that. And the other people here, there'll be other people here where there is a specifically religious element to these decisions. Maybe um, someone where already your parents are talking to you about Chinese New Year this year and how this year, please, can you do it differently? Um, Do you not realize how offended your grandmother was uh, when it came to the thing with the ancestors and you said, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I'm not joining in? Um, and um, there'll be many people in the room being through that. I remember one student who I knew who became a Christian from a Hindu background, and actually his family were um, quite open to that, were quite um, kind to him, until his brother's wedding. Um, His brother's wedding, where um, the older brother has defined religious ceremonial duties. What can a Christian do and not do in that situation? What do you do with the way that your parents react when you ring them and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that? Complex, difficult decisions in a world where Christianity was not the only option, was not the default option, and where not joining in was offensive. And um, verse 1, sorry, we're now in chapter 8, verse 1. Verse 1 tells us what they needed to make decisions about. It's now about food sacrifice to idols. It's almost exactly the situation of my Hindu background friend. Um, The food at the wedding, he needs to be involved in offering it. But I think this is also so relevant for those interactions with our secular ideologies. It's as if the New Testament was always here, ready and waiting for us, Uh, certainly in this waiting for Christendom to kind of crumble down. We're back in the normal world of the New Testament. We're back in the world where Christianity grew and spread, uh, where people realized that Christians were wonderful people and they wanted to be like them. But it is a complicated world. So what I want to do um, this evening, as the very beginning of this series, I want to show us two different ways of making that decision. Um, Way one is the way that the Corinthians are approaching it, and then way two is the way that Paul wants them to take it instead. And the the, the high-level contrast is there in verse 1. If you're still in verse 1, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. There's going to be a knowledge-based way of doing this and a love-based way of doing this. Which one of those two is going to drive our lives here in London? Okay, so way one is going to come up on the screen. Um, That is that knowledge tells you your rights, 
tells you what you should do. Knowledge leads to rights, leads to action. So look down at verse 4. Verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. That's our issue. What does knowledge say? We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Okay, so there, there, is, there are all these ceremonies and meals. They want to be allowed to go and eat and join in, and it means a big deal for their job and their family. So they do some good thinking about gods. Um, they live in a verse 5 world. There are many so-called gods, many gods and many lords. They live in a melting pot city. And that was true of everywhere that Paul went to preach the gospel. Everywhere he went, people were religious. Um, Actually, it's true almost everywhere in the world today. True atheism is very, very rare. And what Paul had to tell that world was not popular. Um, And that has not changed today at all. So verse 4, Paul's message, the gods you worship, they are nothing at all. They're not real. Um, Zeus and Aphrodite and Artemis and Jupiter and Mars and Venus and Osiris and Ra, those are, verse 5, those are so-called gods. And the same thing goes for any of your kings or pharaohs or emperors who call themselves gods. They call themselves gods, but they're not. If you worship the sun, you worship a big nuclear power plant. If you worship a statue, you worship a lump of stone. If you worship the Roman emperor, you worship a fallible human being who is no different from you. The gods you worship are not real. And then that message, that truth, that piece of knowledge that caused riots and jail sentences, it got Christians killed. But it must be true, verse 6, because there is one God. And um, verse 6 gets a, a lot said in very few worlds. I don't know if you've ever been told that the, um, the Christian idea of God, the Trinity, is something that develops only over a very long period of time, long after Jesus. Well, think again. Um, here we are in one of the earliest books in the whole New Testament, and uh, we're in a world where the gods of the day, they're either called God or Lord. And Paul says, well, Christians have only one God, verse 4, And let me now tell you about him, verse 6. He is one God, the Father, and he is one Lord, Jesus. And they, or he, uh, one, alone, created everything else, um, including emperors and statues and sons, uh, from whom and through whom all things come. And they all exist for him. So... All of your gods are not real. And that's the thing that that Paul and the Corinthians, they agree on. So we're not going to spend ages on that tonight. The the Corinthians, um, they have done something very courageous, all of them. They've turned their back on the dominant ideology of their society. And they've signed up to live for the one God of the Bible. And the issue they've got is, okay, how do I live alongside all those people who still uh, worship all those other gods. Um, But just because I'm not sure we are always on the same page as them, I just want to underline what that means for us in London. So they want to be involved, they want to live well alongside those people, but they knew very clearly there is only one God. And I think we just need to feel the shock for 21st century London. And there was nothing obviously wrong with the religions of Corinth. 
Um, you know, you go and visit the Mediterranean now, you see the tumbled down temples, you assume there must have been something, you know, foolish and limited and, and simple about them. Uh, there's nothing superior about the religions that fill London today. Um, the religions they faced back then, they were huge and sophisticated and ancient and culturally beautiful. They were followed by hundreds of thousands of people. They were the bedrock of civilizations so venerable, they make us look like teenagers here in the West. And the state, the army, the university, the society was wrapped around them entirely. But the Christians said, not real. Again, I think we can understand why that caused riots all across the ancient world. And the the Christians, they were good neighbors to those around them who disagreed on that. They loved and they respected. They worked together to build communities. But respecting and loving a friend includes being honest about the God who made them. The Christian claim is that, that God is so huge and unique and so total that there can be no other real gods. Um, And notice that that's not a piece of um, cultural British imperialism. Um, I'm here tonight to encourage you to worship a Middle Eastern Jewish man, Jesus, as the one Lord, together with his Father and the Holy Spirit as the one God revealed to Abraham and to Moses, not here in London, but in the deserts of Sinai and the mountains of Israel. But if he is God, well then, atheists are wrong. You'd expect me to say that. But so are Buddhists. And it means that the Hindu gods are not real. Um, Ganesh and Shiva, they are, verse 4, nothing at all in the world. And these are religions that have survived with active worshippers, unlike Mars or Odin, the ones that we had in this part of the world. But actually, there is no essential difference. Notice even that verse 6 has something to say to Muslim people and Jewish people as well. Um, so Allah does not exist. If by that you mean a God who is complete God without Jesus Christ. Um, You can use the word Allah if you are an Arabic Christian, and that is simply the word for God in your culture. What else are you going to call him? But if you mean the God claimed to exist by Muslims, where Jesus is just a man, that God is not real. And Muslim friends uh, respect me enough to tell me what they think of me worshipping Jesus. Tell me that quite straightforwardly, and Christians need to tell the truth back. Um, It's a good thing in God's sovereign plan that London is full of different opinions about God. Every religion in the world is here and largely is here peacefully and people are free to worship, free to discuss and free to proselytize and free to change religion. That is a very precious and a very difficult thing to achieve and Christians should be full of peaceful welcome to everybody in London. Do you know, even on my very short walk to get here from my house, um, I pass a religious community, a synagogue, where they cannot meet uh, in peace without security guards at every end of the street. Isn't that a scandal? That a child cannot get out of their car and go in to pray in the street here without a security guard. Christians should be peaceful, good neighbours. But actually, there's nothing disrespectful about telling people what is true about God. 
Okay, that was a digression, but here's what Paul and the Corinthians agree on. They agree the idols are not real in those temples, which means, this is how it helps them make their decisions, it means that the food offered there is nothing special. Do you see verse 8 says that as well? Um, The food, it won't bring us near to God. Um, We're no worse if we don't eat, no better if we do. Okay, that's the, the knowledge. And what they do is they argue from what they know through to their rights or their freedoms. Um, do you see in verse 9 the language of rights, this exercise of your rights? And so knowledge leads to rights, leads to action. And the action, verse 10, they, with all their knowledge, they go and eat in an idol's temple. So I just want to show you the, the steps working for them. Here it is. So um, the decision process goes, knowledge leads to rights, leads to action. Um, so they know that idols mean nothing. And they work out from that that just eating the food isn't necessarily worship. Um, You can eat it without worshipping. In fact, by the end of our series, we'll see three different ways that Paul says you can eat this food without worshipping those idols. There's a kind of eating that is just eating. And uh, Paul seems to have here the sort of the the birthday party or the um, big family wedding or the big business event in a temple dining room. Um, It's not kind of in the full worship service, but it's in the dining room next door. Um, The food in it comes out of the temple. It meets in a temple context. But they know, and Paul agrees, that Aphrodite is nothing. So you're you're just eating beef in a room. That's all you're doing. So they claim the right, and they do, and they eat. Okay, that's what they're doing. That's way one. And um, way one, it has a lot going for it. Um, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is the book uh, in the New Testament, really, about being fully involved in the life of the city around you. Um, chapter 5 has a, a positive instruction that says you must associate with the people of this world in all of their immorality. It says you must associate with the greedy, the swindlers, and idolaters, with people who worship other gods. Um, Otherwise, you'd have to leave this world. Please don't come to London, but live such a Christian life that you leave London, even while you sit in your room and travel on the tube and sit at your desk. Um, Christians are not to hide in sort of monastic bubbles. Um, We need to ask each other, where are your properly immoral friends? And when did you last see them and associate with them? Are you part of their lives and they part of yours? And we'll get in this series, we'll get to the end of chapter 9, where Paul tells us he would do anything, give up any of his cultural distinctives and comforts in order that all people might be saved by any means possible. He's out there with everybody he meets. And by the end of chapter 10, Paul will tell us to eat and drink and do everything in order to please everybody else, not yourself, so that they might be saved. Be with normal London. Eat what they eat, drink what they drink, get alongside them, get to know them, associate with them. So the Corinthians, they they work out this knowledge. They say they have the right to eat and they are right about their rights. But, but, being right isn't everything. So look back up to verse one. We've got two aims for a Christian life. Um, Two aims that you might have brought with you to 5.30 this evening, to All Souls this evening. Do you want to puff up 
or build up. Because verse one, second sentence, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And puffed up is Paul's basic challenge to the church in Corinth. And this is how he thought about them. They thought they were the best church in the world. They thought they were the most spiritual, the most gifted, the most knowledgeable. And Paul says, you are just like an inflated paper bag, puffed up. Um, You look big and impressive, but it is all air, and you can burst it just like that. And he says there is a different aim you could have for your Christian life and your church. Love aims to build up. That's all about um, stones and bricks and mortar, Um, stone on stone, hard work and solid growth. And he says knowledge, even true, accurate knowledge, it comes with a a danger to pride. Um, Verse 2 is saying the moment you really think you know something, do you know, I am really one of those well-informed Christians. I have read all the books, do you know? I do know what I'm talking about. The moment you say that, you've already gone wrong. And that is the wrong kind of knowledge. And actually, if you've been here, that's been our theme all summer. And we don't want to be a church that knows about God only. That's no good. We want to know God and be known by him. And verse three, whoever loves God is known by him. This isn't the sort of modern free-for-all, love is love, that um, you know, anything that feels like love is good. Chapter five, that's the chapter that tells us we should associate with the immoral people of this world who don't claim to be Christians. It's also the chapter that tells churches to exclude those who claim to be Christians but live in public, unrepentant, serious sin. So it's not a free-for-all, but it is a way of making decisions that says, I'm going to put love for people first. So here's way two. Love says that people matter more than rights. Do you remember the Corinthians making their decision? Um, they're getting it right, getting it right about their rights. They're trying to decide, can, what can they do at Chinese New Year? What can they do at the Hindu wedding? What can they do at work? Um, and they're getting it right. They know they need to steer clear of full-blown worship, but they know they can go into the temple and eat with their colleagues without compromise. They have that right. But rights are not everything, and knowledge isn't everything, because love has something to say too. And love says people matter more than rights. So just follow that through with me in the passage. They have knowledge, but, verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So there's another group of people. Uh, They've become Christians, but they are still so accustomed to their old religion, they couldn't just go and eat, not even in a dining room and not think about the the God in the room next door. To them, eating would be worship. And they're wrong. They're wrong about that. Um, They don't need to feel that way, but they do. So for them, to eat would be full-blown worship of another God, with everything that that means. Um, Actually, that is quite a a helpful principle to take into complicated London. Um, If something feels wrong to you, If something would be wrong in your conscience, then it is for you. 
doesn't matter what other Christians think. doesn't matter if um, other Christians say they, they're allowed to do it. If it feels wrong for you, if it's wrong for you in your conscience, don't do it. And trust the Lord. But we're not left by Paul with a sort of easy situation where half can eat and half don't. Because these meals, they're sort of public. So look at verse 9. They need to be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And again, I've put the steps up on a slide so we can see how that would work. And I, I don't know why I've chosen to call the way one person Jimmy. Um, apologies if your name is Jimmy, but um, that's his name for this evening, okay? So um, Jimmy, he is eating. And he's eating because he knows idols are nothing, so eating isn't worship, so you can eat. But when Jimmy does that, the other group can see him. So verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you, Jimmy, doesn't say Jimmy, but Jimmy, sees you with your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So they see Jimmy eating, Jimmy is eating, they, I'll join in, must be okay, it's something that Christians do, I'll join in which is great, because that would make my life so much easier. I'll get my job back. My parents will be so pleased. But for him, eating is worshipping. So when he joins in, when he eats, he is actually worshipping the false gods. And verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Um, notice how specific this is and careful this is. There would also have been another group in the church who had Paul's background. They were Jewish people, Jewish converts to Christ. They'd have never been in an idol's temple in their lives. They'd be disgusted about it. They'd be, yeah, that's wrong. Um, and they would be very critical of those who did. Um, love doesn't say you have to stop exercising your rights just because somebody disapproves. It's not that the moment that someone here at All Souls thinks you're wrong, you've got to stop. Um, you're okay. Their disapproval, it's not actually going to hurt them. You can eat. This is about a group with a background in idol worship who are just hoping maybe there is a way of going back to their old way of life. And your example, even though you're not actually doing anything wrong, it pushes them over that line in their conscience for them. And they end up eating. So Paul says, even if your knowledge is right and your rights are right, there are times when eating could hurt your brother or sister, which would make it, verse 12, sin. And Paul is willing to do almost anything to avoid that. Verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Um, and that uh, may feel like a very big deal to you. Um, I don't know if you knew that tonight you might be challenged to become a vegetarian for life. Very dangerous to come to church. But for them, he's saying actually something more than that. Saying they might need to withdraw, at least for a time, from the socially useful, socially essential ceremonies and occasions for the sake of the people that Jesus died for. Even though they have the right, have the freedom, and he knows what this might cost them. It might cost them their business, cost them their relationship with their parents, cost them their reputation in the town. But love says that people matter more than all of those things. Because Jesus, verse 11, he made the decision to die for these people. 
Because to him, think about that decision, they mattered more than the next breath in his body. Um, There was no meat to eat, I guess, in Pontius Pilate's prison cell. No career opportunities when they were flogging him. Um, His mum was there at the cross, and Jesus had to say goodbye to her in order to die, so that you, Jimmy, could be rescued from your sin, and so that your weak-conscienced friend, brother, sister, could be rescued as well. Now, I said at the beginning, um, I'm not promising answers to every complex issue to do with life in London, but these are the kind of issues I want us to talk about on a Sunday night over the next few weeks. Um, and you, you have come to the right place for this. There are people here from cultures all over the world with years of Christian experience between them. We can really help each other, build each other up on this with these chapters open in front of us. Let's talk about our decisions, our dilemmas, talk about what we've done, uh, maybe what you'd do if you had the choice again. And in future weeks, we get more detail. But just for tonight, notice that um, London is a very, very rights-focused society. The 21st century is very rights-focused, and that pushes in on us. And notice as well, All Souls is a very knowledge focused group of people in the main. So there may be strong challenges here to us. If we are accustomed to use our knowledge to work out our rights as the dominant way we make our decisions, Paul wants to give us a very different way to make choices in the Christian life. Really, you and I, we are here for each other more than we are for ourselves. We're not here for our rights and our own needs. We're here for each other. My choices, they affect you and they could harm you. It's not enough to be right and do what I'm allowed to do. If I care for you the way Jesus cared for me, then I'd be willing to give up things to do with food and drink and culture and society and job and career and family if it will help my brothers and sisters. And wouldn't it be incredible if you come here to be in London and make these choices in this complex city, wouldn't it be incredible if you made this the place where you were with brothers and sisters committed to love each other no matter what, put each other first and help each other to live for Jesus in London? That's my prayer. I'm going to pray now. Father God, we think of Jesus deciding whether to die in all his infinite status and value and power. And he decided we were worth his death. The loss of his life, his freedom, his rights, his status, his everything. And Father, we ask you would change us so we see each other the way that the Lord Jesus sees us. We would love each other. We would put each other above ourselves. And that as we make these hard, hard decisions about life in London with all its competing ideas and religions and ideologies, that we would make those decisions for Christ and for each other. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.